Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Adham Sauli, Senior Lecturer in International Relations and Middle East Politics at the University of St. Andrews, and also for another year visiting Associate Professor at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. Adham has written extensively on, on Middle East politics, on Lebanese politics, on Hezbollah, on the international relations and historical sociology of the Middle East. He's a SEPAD fellow, and uh, I'm really excited that, that he's joining us down the line from Spain. Adham, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simon. Thanks. It's a real pleasure, Adam. Um, I've been trying to sort out dates with you for a while, and I'm pleased that we were able to make our diaries uh, coincide. So I'm really excited to talk about a range of different things, about theory, about methods, about your own experience, and of course about your new book. And uh, we'll get on to that in due course. But I wonder, can you, can you start by just telling us a little bit about how you got interested in, in working on Middle East politics, please? Well, I'm, I'm from Lebanon, originally from Lebanon, and coming from Lebanon, uh, it shouldn't surprise anyone, you'd be interested in politics. Sure. Why states collapse, why states come together, and I think this background played a key role in my uh, choice of an academic career, and basically I had many questions that I was interested in answering as a teenager. And I think at one point I was interested to know more about this Arab world. And I think that was the driving force for my choice of an academic career, being a researcher on the, on the region. Sure. Was there a, a particular event that, that prompted those questions? Um, I, I'd say um, probably, probably um, the Lebanese war. Although I didn't actually live in Lebanon during the, most of the war, but the, the, the memory of the war, and then I lived briefly in Lebanon in the post-war period, I was very interesting, interested to know how and why did the war take place, how did it come to an end, and then the reconstruction of Lebanon, the coming of new governments, uh, uh, actually inclined to... Uh, the opposition then, I wasn't very happy the way things were organized, so that got me into into politics and political science to be more specific. Were you active politically at this time, or was it more an intellectual curiosity? I'd say more intellectual curiosity, yeah, uh, with the exception of attending few events, the university um, sure. contributed to... Um, the organization of uh, establishment, actually, of a club that promoted democratic and to, a, to, to an extent leftish um, ideals. But that was it, really. I was more inclined to to, to books and knowing rather than <laughs> sure. active political activity. Yeah. You won't be surprised to know, and uh, and regular listeners will also be drawing parallels that that other guests from from Lebanon have said pretty much the same thing that it's there um, to to use a word that you use in your book socialization in Lebanese politics that pushed them into the academic route. 
Sure, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I had a sense that that might be where you were going with your answer, Adam, but of course, I'm not going to prejudge anything. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. interesting to hear that, that point reinforced, this, this sort of socializing experience. Mm-hmm. So you made that, that choice to go into, into politics and political science. And so, so you, went and you went to university to study political science? Yeah, international affairs and diplomacy. That that's what it was called at uh, Notre Dame University. Right. Where I did my bachelor's degree. I wasn't particularly um, a great student at school, so I couldn't <laughs> directly to Ameri- to the American University. But by the time I completed my bachelor's degree, I was more or less ready to um, apply to the American University of Beirut. And this is where I did my master's degree. So you did your master's, and then then what happened? You went to, um, to do a PhD straight away? Well, I worked for a couple of years with my, in my family's business, and took me a while to convince the family that I'm not into business. <laughs> right. And um, I was spending most of my time, to be honest, in the, after the master's degree, spending most of the time reading on state theory. Uh, that's what I was interested in. Okay. Uh, not in making any profits for the family. So uh, at one point, I was pretty clear that uh, doing a PhD would be the right thing for me. Right, okay started um, to apply for programs, primarily in the UK. And that led you to St Andrews? Yes. Why? Of all places you could have gone to, what was it about St Andrews that that spoke to you? Well, um, uh, I did go briefly to Exeter in England. um, Right. Because, uh, of course, Exeter has a great Middle East program. But uh, two, two honest reasons that led me to St. Andrews. One is Raymond Hennebush, sure. who later became a, a great colleague and friend. Um, I was very interested in his work, particularly in the ways he um, uh, theorizes the interactions between the domestic and the international, particularly as he examines the historical processes of state formation. Yeah. Uh, also, I did get um, a scholarship, which led me to move northward <laughs> to St. Andrews. And that was a very good decision to make, to be honest. And St. Andrews was and still is uh, one of the top universities in the country. Yeah, of course. We've just uh, beaten uh, Oxford. We're now second, according to The Guardian. And we love The Guardian now. Well, Mabruk, congratulations. Very exciting news for, for St. Andrews. Lancaster is seventh. Just a little um, a little plug for, for my home institution. So we too love The Guardian. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the PhD, Adham, if I may, um, because obviously that's had such a big impact on, on your, your, your career from there. I can see a number of, of themes of, of similarity that that I can imagine were, were influenced to some extent by, by Ray? To a certain extent. Uh, first, yeah, you are right. That was a very important foundation for me. Um, but it did start a bit earlier at the American University of Beirut. I was very lucky to work with Yahya Sadovsky, a major scholar in Middle East <laughs> politics and international relations. 
And I was interested in these large processes that shape entities, individuals, groups, and societies. Um, usually, um, as a researcher, one starts from a narrow research project, maybe a political party in a country, or one case study, or the foreign policy of uh, a state. I was more interested in the bigger questions. How did this region come together? How did the Middle East come together? How sure. were boundaries drawn? And this required both uh, a historical understanding of the region, but also a comparative dimension to it. So it all started, I think, at AUB, Right. When I, um, for my master's thesis, I compared the case, uh, cases of Egypt and South Korea, wanting to understand what went wrong for Egypt and what went right for South Korea. They, they both started in the 19, early 1950s with similar economic um, development standards, but then they took various different trajectories. And here, this... Um, exposed my interests and curiosities to the question of state formation. How do states come together? Uh, why are some states strong? Why are others weak? But theories of economic development and political development um, also expose various gaps, namely the factor of the international. And this is where the work of Ray Hinebush came in handy, particularly his book on the international politics of the Middle East, and then Fred Halliday's historical sociology, sociology of, the, of the region. So by the time I reached St. Andrews, I, was, uh, I had a clear research question, and it was on how do we explain uh, the survival of states in the region, basically how how do states stay intact? This is the, uh, the, the, the wording I think I used then. How do you explain the survival of the territorial state, but also of political regimes since the beginning of the 20th century? So you're talking many... about... Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, you're talking about state survival. Is this in the face of, of, of what type of pressures, Adam? In the face of um, domestic attempts to revise the state system, particularly sure. by various ideological groups, such as the Islamists, the Arab nationalists, even the communists, and uh, by attempts of regional actors to redraw the boundaries. So despite all of these attempts, despite the general perception of the region as being captivated <coughs> by Western states, the outcome I was very clear about that the political boundaries remained more or less resilient. And that raised the biggest question in my mind. So I wanted to know why and how. And um, this triggered various theoretical questions, various conceptual questions, particularly on what do we mean by state? Um, should we just adopt a Western notion of a state, or should we develop one to suit the purposes of the Middle East region? And I built on IR theory, state theory, sociological theories to um, uh, contribute the historical sociology of the state in the region. And that led to 
first to my PhD and then to the book, my first book on the Arab state. Fantastic. Can you tell us a bit about this this state theory, this this contribution that you make to to historical sociology? Because it's it's fascinating. As someone who's read your book and and read your work, I, I'm I'm really interested in this sort of navigation of, of different levels of analysis that you do, and I think you do it so very well. But can you just share a little bit about your your view, your your theoretical contribution to statehood for people who've not had chance to read your work yet? Sure. Uh, at a co- conceptual level, the, the biggest challenge was trying to understand what does it mean to be a state in the region. So it's easy to realize that when you look at the region, particularly in the last few decades, uh, it's clear that what you get is not your typical or ideal Weberian state. So what is it? And I argue that what emerged with the drawing of the boundaries in the region, what emerged was social fields. And these social fields are the arenas where states either form or deform. So uh, the idea of deformation came as an answer to the unilinear uh, approaches that thought the state is will basically develop and become something uh, similar to the Western state. So I argue first that you have social fields, and within these social fields you have various social compositions, and within these fields states are built or states even collapse. But then the biggest challenge was how uh, to understand the drawing of borders. And here I built on Ayubi and others who argued that it it was always a a mix of both indigenous attempts and external factors that led to the drawing of the borders. And between parentheses, this is quite different from the dominant narratives and political discourses in the region that think that everything that took place in the region had to do with a Western conspiracy, if you want. Hmm. I think that the picture was and still is quite more uh, sophisticated, and indigenous actors played key role in the making of the state. Sure. And then I look um, at various state trajectories. I conceptualize the process of state building, again, contributing to the meaning of state building. I argue that more than the monopolization of coercion, you need to also look at the monopolization of ideology as a key factor to understand state building. And... The monopolization of economic resources. Sure. This paves the way to understand then, uh, say, deformation uh, or the demonopolization of uh, ideology when oppositional groups rise and they begin to uh, challenge a regime's hegemony over the ideological and hegemony um, over uh, coercive forces. So this also gave me the conceptual tools to understand why some states collapsed, such as Iraq, Libya, Lebanon in 1975, and um, lately Yemen. Yeah. Adam, um, there's, a, there's some, a clear comparative dimension in this. And, exactly. And exactly. I, can you say a little bit about the... the challenges involved in in doing this comparative analysis in in the region? It's quite challenging because uh, there's always a trade-off when you're trying to theorize a whole region. Yeah. It might come at the the expense of local um, 
domestic um, detailed histories uh, of specific countries. But I think the, the conceptual framework is general enough to accommodate various cases and uh, precise enough to delineate these uh, trajectories without, well, well, sorry, whilst keeping um, um, history and historical detail as part of the story. So it, it gives you, if you want to, conceptual and theoretical map to understand the world, but you always need to zoom in, so to speak, to understand the particular history of specific cases. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to see how you do this. For people who've not read Adham's book and, and subsequent publications that look at similar themes, I, I really urge you to, and I'll 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 share a, a number of, of links in the in the in the, the Twitter and, and various other places so people can get a sense of the things that you've published. Adam, you've you've published a range of things in between that first book and the second, and we're going to have to get you back on another time to talk about some of those in your work on Syria mm-hmm. and, and the Arab uprisings, because I want to talk to you about the, the second book, uh-huh. the one that's, that came out how many months ago? Not all that many. Well, February, I think, yeah, a few months ago. Exactly, yeah, very exciting. So this book is called Hezbollah Socialization and its Tragic Ironies, published by Edinburgh University Press. I have a copy. It's wonderful. It's fascinating. And it, it easily gets around the charges of, oh, no, not another book on Hezbollah. But for those people that that have not read it yet, and I understand that it's it's four months old, can you tell us what you're trying to do in the book, please? Let me start with my theoretical point of departure. Uh, these are my intellectual, broad intellectual interests, and this is where the Hezbollah book fits in. I'm interested in the genesis and socialization of social actors, be they states, that's basically my first book, the genesis and development of the Arab state, be they intellectuals, I've also looked at intellectuals, particularly those that have shaped Hezbollah's uh, movement. I've all, I'm also interested in the socialization of movements. So this book examines specifically the case of Hezbollah, um, which I've been researching for a long time now, I think. And uh, basically, the book is interested on the causes that led to Hezbollah's emergence and how and why has Hezbollah socialized in the Lebanese arena, but also at the regional level or international level. Now, um, listeners of this would be asking, what do you, what do you mean by socialization? <laughs> basically, um, what happens to political actors when they become part of the political world? Uh, you could be an individual, a political party, a movement, a state. You hold certain ideals, certain ideologies, and you integrate into this political world with a mission to realize your ideals. So it's purposeful socialization. And that's quite different from socialization as it's understood in sociology, where you're basically um, a child and you socialize into the world and you begin to integrate or internalize 
uh, its norms and uh, expectations and traditions, etc., etc. Here, the story is slightly different because Hezbollah started with certain ideals. So I'm interested in what in the question of what happens when these political actors become part of this world and what are the intended but also unintended consequences of socialization. So this book traces Hezbollah's socialization from the early 1980s, although it does go back to set the context to understand their ideological background, but also the political developments in Lebanon and the region that led to their emergence. But then I also look at their development leading to 2017. Um, mm. uh, basically, that's the time when Hezbollah has been exposed as a regional power more than just a basic Lebanese political party. So you're, you're transcending disciplines, you're transcending theoretical approaches, you're transcending levels of analysis. It's quite ambitious. It's, it it's, is. It is. And it, it's hugely rewarding, I would say, for the reader. There's there's so much rich material, rich theoretical, conceptual, empirical material. Before we go into the, the nitty-gritty of the arguments, can you just tell us how you went about doing it, please? What what, what methodologies are you using? It, it actually develops from the research I've been doing for the last 15, you know, 15 or so years, um, I'm interested in historical sociology, basically, for just for the listeners who might not necessarily have uh, come across this term before. Historical sociology mixes sociology and history, and now it's made, it has a presence in the field of international relations. And it starts really with the uh, giants in intellectual and political theory, Karl Marx, Max Weber, Norbert Elias, um, and it looks at the genesis of actors, the causes and consequences of major political events in history, such as uh, the French Revolution, the Islamic Revolution, and then you try to trace the effects of these major events on political and social and international arenas. So in the methodology, history matters, tracing how an actor has emerged, why it emerged, what ideas does it carry, what is its identity, and most importantly, what political goals does it carry. As you can see, by raising these um, theoretical questions, uh, it transcends not only uh, the domestic and the international or fields of study, but it also transcends many of the dichotomies we, we, we fight over in uh, the social sciences between identity and interest, between um, context and actor or structure and agent. So it's embedded in history, but also it does require some theoretical innovation. Um, so this is basically the tradition of historical sociology, as I call it. In, in Hezbollah's case, I basically traced this, but I also developed uh, theoretical tools, which I, in some cases, imported from IR, uh, basically on what kind of arenas has Hezbollah socialized in. And this is a crucial uh, question to understand the process of socialization. And this is where I bring the idea of anarchical orders. Um, 
uh, I treat Lebanon as an anarchical order, but also the region as an anarchical order. Sure. And uh, realists and to a large extent also constructivists in IR have produced good work on that, which I've yeah, built on to understand Hezbollah. Fantastic. And going about getting the empirical data then, this is based on on a range of different types of sources as well, isn't it? Yes. Um, uh, one was interviews. The second involved um, documentaries. Third involved reading most of what Hezbollah's major thinkers and strategists have written on the topic. But also I looked at the testimonies of Hezbollah's fighters because I wanted to know to what extent does Hezbollah's religious political doctrine permeate uh, various uh, echelons of the, the movement. So yeah, I've looked, um, gathered data from various uh, sources, um, speeches, communiques, semi-structured interviews, which I carried on in Lebanon for uh two years, uh, whenever I could visit, <laughs> yeah. and uh, many documentaries too. It's it's really come together incredibly well, and it's, it's such a thought-provoking book. And I, I strongly urge anyone working not only on Hezbollah, but also Lebanon and, and regional affairs to, to look at it, because it does bring together all these different... Um, different issues that, that you just flagged up, all these different tensions, it, it brings them out so very nicely. But I, I wonder, can you say a little bit about these these fields of of contestation? I, sorry, I'm, I'm not using the correct terminology, but the arenas where Hezbollah is, is being socialized. Can you just tell us a bit about that and the, the types of forces that are shaping the socialization? Sure. Uh, let, let, let me start with a with a major concept in international relations here, which is the concept of anarchy. Which, for general listeners or readers, it doesn't mean chaos. It just means that the world, as it's understood by may, primarily realists, but also English school theorists, some historical sociologists, it basically means that the world, the international system, is anarchical in the sense that there is no world government, which means states have to always fight for their survival. States have to always be prepared uh, for war, simply because if they do get in trouble, there's no police to call uh, to get seek help from. Mm. That's what it means um, when we talk about anarchy. But anarchy does create its own balances, and these balances with, over time, establish some sort of stability. Uh, I do import this idea from international relations to understand Hezbollah's war-making with Israel and the way it's socialized in the region. But Lebanon, as a weak, divided state, it required some sort of theoretical innovation. Here, I argue that Lebanon is some sort of an anarchical um, Lokian order, going back to John Locke, who mm. uh, believed that it's not all about enmity, it's not all about war. Norms do matter, and ideas matter, and identities matter, and social expectations matter. So if you look at the case of Lebanon, what we 
normally conceptualized as um, a consociation of democracy, where you have a certain norms, groups are expected to respect each other's norms, but sometimes things become nasty. Uh, the ties that bind these various groups collapse or erode, and then you get wars. So a country like Lebanon has faced quite a few wars since its independence in 1943. So I conceptualize this as a Lokian anarchy, meaning that there are certain norms, and these, this is quite important to understand what Hezbollah socialized in, what kind of norms did it internalize in the process of socialization, why did it um, um, enter, internalize these norms, and specifically here you're talking about an Islamist movement that supposedly or theoretically does not believe in national boundaries or national modern states because it's a transnational movement. Yet, it was still embedded in the case in the country like Lebanon, and hence it had to um, expose itself to these norms, but also try to shape these norms. This is the importance of purposeful socialization. You do want to create a world that is conducive to your own political ideals. And this is the challenge here, and it comes with intended and unintended consequences. Hmm. The unintended consequences we can talk a bit, shed some light on uh, later on. This is where the story of the tragic ironies come in, but we can talk about this in a bit. So, yeah, what do you mean by tragic ironies? That was going to be my next question, because I think it's such a such a powerful subtitle. Um, what are you getting at with that? Well, uh, tragic ironies, um, the, the, the factor of tragedy in politics has a long history, yeah. starting Greek philosophers, but it was classical realists who picked it up in the 20th century. Someone like Niebuhr, someone like even Morgenthau, his, um, his book on um, the, 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 the tragedy of great powers. Um, so most of these um, actors tended to look at the consequences of actors socializing in the world. They didn't necessarily use the word socializing, but they did more or less um, focus on the, if you want, unintended consequences. Someone like Niebuhr, maybe it's worth um, quoting him because he, he's, he's an amazing sure. um, writer. So I'll just, just give you an idea about the, the um, ironies of, and tragedies of politics. I quote him, if men or nations do evil in a good cause, and this is by men and nations, it could be individuals or states like the US. I think he had the US um, in mind when he was writing these lines. If they cover themselves with guilt in order to fulfill some high responsibility, or if they sacrifice some high value for the sake of a higher or equal one, they make a tragic choice. And we do, the, of course, everyone does this in politics. Um, mm. You invade Iraq to bring democracy, maybe with good intentions, maybe with bad intentions, but this has 
consequences, which sometimes turn quite nasty, uh, turn into consequences that you wouldn't have necessarily wanted to arrive at. What's irony? Well, irony, on the other hand, consists of apparently 42 incongruities. If virtue becomes vice through some hidden defect in virtue, if virtue becomes weakness because of the vanity to which strength may prompt the mighty man or nation, if security is transmuted into insecurity because too much reliance is placed upon it, if wisdom becomes folly because it does not know its limits, in all such cases, the situation is ironic. Sorry, it's a long quote. <laughs> it is, but it's very powerful. It is. It is. It was a great writer. Um, Where was that from, Adam? Uh, it's, it's from his book called The Irony of American History. Right. Basically, uh, the idea is quite straightforward. Uh, when America embarked on uh, into the world, wanting to bring its own values to that world, it ended up being embroiled in uh, wars and cases, and even using of the atomic bomb, which more or less were in total contradiction with the initial values it had about itself, but also about the world it wanted to, to shape. So this is the tragedy of politics. It's um, uh, reaching certain conclusions that you would not have necessarily wanted to reach. And of course, when looking at the case of Hezbollah, we can come to this aspect of its own socialization. Mm. So what are these tragic ironies for, for Hezbollah then? Well, Hezbollah, uh, for, for a long, long period, of course, it's a controversial um, armed political movement. That's what I conceptualize it in the book. Yeah. Um, for some, it's a terrorist movement. For others, it's a resistance movement, national liberation movement. Until the probably 2008, but mostly uh, primarily until 2011, when uh, Hezbollah began to intervene in the war in Syria, Hezbollah was one of the most popular movements in, in uh, the Arab world. And uh, its popularity came, at least in the Arab world, from its, the goals it has set for itself, but also what it has achieved on the ground. It wanted to liberate Lebanon from the Israeli occupation, but it also had dreams of liberating Palestine. And it never intervened in, uh, directly in um, uh, Arab cases and Arab countries. But then, and it always... Um, uh, exposed or promoted the discourse that it is a victim of this international system, that powerful states like the US, UK, and others have used uh, values such as democracy to invade and occupy countries, uh, to support Israel, etc., etc. And uh, it accused others of labeling as a, it as a terrorist movement simply because they wanted to delegitimize it. So that was Hezbollah's discourse for a long period, and on the ground it was engaged in what I call a war-making with Israel for a long, long period, leading to Israel's uh, withdrawal from Lebanon in 2000. But with time, Hezbollah began to be uh, engaged initially in Lebanese politics, 
for a long period, Hezbollah was considered as a resistance movement in Lebanon. Mm. But with serious withdrawal from Lebanon in 2005, Hezbollah began to play an increasingly influential um, role in Lebanon, basically uh, a role that aimed to protect itself um, against its Lebanese rivals, more or less pro-Western, pro-Saudi rivals in Lebanon. However, when the uprising started, Hezbollah was um, celebrated these uprisings, but when these uprising, when the uprising reached uh, Syria, um, initially peaceful uprising against an authoritarian regime, Hezbollah had a more <laughs> um, sophisticated interpretation of um, mm. the, the development. But more importantly, as things began to go in the wrong direction for the Syrian regime, as the Syrian regime's power was eroding in Syria, as the threat of his removal was uh, becoming more or less real, Hezbollah stepped in militarily and um, contributed to the regime's um, survival initially before other groups um, from other parts of the Middle East and ultimately Russia came in to protect the regime from from collapsing. Now, this went uh, in contradiction to Hezbollah's own discourse of fighting for the the, the, the weak, the oppressed against um, uh, against uh, repressive regimes. Mm-hmm. This also went against um, its ideals of freedom of the oppressed. And with time, it began to label its, um, and that's. The, the the irony of it all, really, how political actors conform to the anarchical order. And then they begin to talk, um, uh, use the discourse used even by the hegemonic powers. So it began to justify its intervention in Syria as one of a preemptive, <laughs> preemptive <laughs> yeah. intervention in Syria, something used by the American administration for a long period, but also by virtually all influential states because you, you mm-hmm. want to preempt the enemy. So you intervene, you create more wars, and etc., etc. Et but also it began to um, label its rivals and enemies as terrorists, something which it has been victim yeah. to for a long, long period. Intellectually, some of its... Um, um, leaders began to talk about transcending Lebanon's borders to other regions, other countries of the region, to protect, uh, A, Lebanon, but also the, uh, the whole axis, the whole alliance between Syria, um, Hezbollah, and Iran. So on the one hand, you have this discourse. On the other hand, you have actual interventions in Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. And that's... Um, to a large extent, that's an iric, uh, tragic irony, yeah. uh, leading many of um, Hezbollah's critics to call it now an occupying power in Syria, contributing to the repression of the Syrian people. Uh, this is where, if you want, one of the unintended consequences of socialization. Now, the crucial question is, why did this leave Hezbollah? Uh, why did Hezbollah reach this conclusion? It has to do with the nature of the international system. It is an anarchical one. 
And when actors are threatened, they're willing to cross boundaries, they're willing to um, overcome any normative or um, even uh, ethical constraints to their action. And the goal is always um, survival. Now, does this really contradict with Hezbollah's initial um, ideals? Well, not necessarily, because also Hezbollah looked at these regional developments as an opportunity to strengthen the alliance with Iran, to increase their influence in the region, sure. basically to weaken Western, namely American, influence in the region and the influence of their rivals. Hence, you begin to see... Um, a network of actors, state and non-state actors, in the region, more or less um, acting as um, a countervailing power um, against Western intervention, Western presence in the region. So that continues to be in tune with Hezbollah's initial um, founding manifesto of 1985. Hmm. But it, it certainly also leads to to certain charges that you've been identifying and and things that you explore in the book as the the very serious and unintended perhaps repercussions of these strategic decisions domestically and regionally as a consequence of Hezbollah's actions in Syria. So again it's that is that multi-level analysis and suggesting that events at at one level will have serious repercussions not only in that in that arena or that level of analysis but also at the different levels as well. And that's that's one of the things that you do such a good job of of outlining and exploring across the book which is absolutely fantastic and I urge people to to pick up a copy if they haven't done so already. But Adam We've taken up so much of your time this morning. It's been it's been absolutely fabulous talking with you about it. I, I've learned a great deal, and, and it's a really good addition to to the the hard copy of the book that I've got with me. It's really really interesting to hear you bring these these ideas to light. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Simon. That was exciting for me too. I'm very <laughs> happy to share my uh, ideas about the book even briefly, but. The book is more detailed and <laughs> talks more to most of these aspects of Hezbollah's uh, socialization. So thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Adham. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to, to speaking again when we can talk about the Arab uprisings and, uh, and all of the work that you've done in between these two books. So thank you so much. And, uh, and until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you, Simon. Thanks. Thank you.